listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. The beautiful things um, about having a new life in the house is that suddenly your refrigerator is filled with food that other people make. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's been marvelous. Um, My wife and I love to cook and so forth, but just being able to kind of, you know, come home or, or, or have that kind of taken off the table as far as planning goes and just, you know, feed this child or give our first uh, first first babe lots of love and so forth, the, the kind of having that, that responsibility has been really kind of neat. It's also meant that, as we spoke last week uh, uh, or a couple weeks back, um, there's a lot of greed that shows up. And what I'll share with you is uh, my, my wife and I have these friends who their cooking is quite literally transcendent. It's so good. What they can make the simplest food, like just explode with life. It's like they know that it's alive or something. It's quite beautiful. Anyway, I'm, uh, I'm sitting there um, looking, looking at this cornucopia of food in the, in the fridge and there's this piece of, of chicken pot pie that they made and uh, I'm going in for the kill and suddenly from across the room my wife is feeding, feeding uh, our baby and she says, nope, that's mine. <laughs> and, and I immediately went to this little, this little catchphrase that she and I share. Um, uh, <laughs> which is not me, not mine. It's a Buddhist teaching that was kind of thrown at us when she and I, together in Thailand, were on this retreat with this particular uh, rather ancient master. And this was core to the teaching that he was giving. Not me, not mine. So what the heck could that possibly mean? Not me, not mine. Well, his point was that when we look at our life, we can look at our life in one of two ways. We can look at it from the conventional sense, the normal, okay? When in fact there is a me, and there is a mine, and there is an I, and there is a you, and all that stuff. The real world might be another way of putting it. And then there is also the ultimate sense. And the ultimate sense is when, when we begin to, through our stillness practice, through our meditation, we begin to uncover something that is beyond that sense of reality. It's not instead of, it's in addition to. It goes past that old reality and yet includes it. 
just like at 45 years old, you go past being 35 years old, but you also include all those experiences. Does everyone hear me so far? So this idea of not me means that we begin to see the spaciousness in all things. Not mine means that we can't ultimately possess anything. Ultimately, we cannot possess anything. We might be able to possess it temporarily and fool ourselves into thinking we'll have it forever, but that there's really no thing as a me or a mine. Needless to say, um, I ate the pie anyway. And <laughs> I mean, she always pulls this breastfeeding, I'm a new mom trump card all the time. And I just, I think that's an attachment that she needs to work through. <laughs> of course I gave it to her. Yes. Um, but I still think this is something really worthy of our consideration as we, uh, as we kind of endeavor to awaken to what's deeper than the reality we always think to be whole. But actually, the reality we look at day to day, where I'm in here and everything else is out there somewhere, is very difficult. It's very difficult. It generates, it generates a certain unease. We tend to live lives rooted in fear of what's going to be taken from us <laughs> when we see separation all the time. When our meditation begins to break that down a little bit and we see the deep inclusivity of all things, suddenly that fear begins to subside spontaneously. It's not something we have to work on. It's not something that's intellectual. It's not that we have to understand it. It's that we begin to experience it. We begin to experience a certain peace in the face of it all, whether it's good or bad, up or down, right or wrong, black or white we begin to develop a certain aplomb. And what comes out of that wisdom is very naturally compassion. We begin to develop a certain spaciousness, a certain love for all beings, all things, all situations. It's very steady. Certain love will resonate a little differently, but our ability to experience it, our, uh, our ability to experience it fully, to meet it fully, whatever it is, is radically enhanced. We meet the world with, uh, to use Christian terminology, we meet the world with our Christ consciousness. And we begin to see that there's uh, ample space for sharing. Especially if that, in, that sharing involves very well-made chicken pot pie. <laughs>
was something, as my teacher used to say, inherently unreliable about this life. There's something inherently unreliable whenever we say something is mine. <coughs> whenever we identify a me or an I, whatever it happens to be, when we cling to that notion, there's something inherently unreliable that we face. And we may not experience it consciously, but the universe has a way of reminding us that we can't keep anything. And this is scary. It's very natural for this to evoke and, you know, spawn major fear in most practitioners. They get to a point in their practice where, you know, they've been meditating for a while and it's been feeling really good and they got a, you know, nice group of people that they sit with and, you know, they, they like the teachers, uh, you know, whatever. The issue is that when the practice of stillness really starts resonating in our hearts and minds, through our hearts and minds, we start recognizing that there isn't much difference between our heart and our mind. We start seeing that there isn't much difference between this or that. That difference and sameness kind of start to do this weird kind of dance. We start recognizing, my God, I can't go back to the way I used to be. Ignorance is what? Exactly. And then suddenly we lose that the more we endeavor heroically to meet our life from a place of radical honesty. And not a lot of people do this. It's so much easier just to have salvation. You know, if you do this, then you're fine. You know, it, if you believe this, then everything's fine. And if you screw up, just confess it and we're fine. And you say, this prescribed number of Lotus Sutra, you know, recitations or Hail Marys or whatever it is. It's not to take anything away from tradition, because I think tradition is actually really beautiful. <laughs> and I actually think confession, when done from a place of total awareness and consciousness, is really powerful. It's about meeting your life totally, openly, and honestly. Radical honesty means that we actually engage in a life, this very life, from a place of fearlessness. Knowing, because remember Braveheart? Every man dies, but not every man really lives. I suddenly turned into a Liverpoolian there. <laughs> I, was, I was channeling Ringo Starr, I guess, or something, what, whatever. <laughs> Not every man really lives, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Pardon for that, for that. But I think this is really true. Do we really live? Do we really live fearlessly? <laughs> knowing that it's going to end. Knowing that we really can't hide. Knowing that we can't make anything 100% totally safe. That there is something inherently unreliable about this whole thing we call life. No matter how much we plan appropriately, universe wins. It's like in, in gambling, maybe this is one of the reasons why I, I just, it's never really been such a thrill for me, but the house always wins. Always. I mean, you might win 
a temporary chunk of change. But ultimately, at the, at the ultimate, not the conventional, but the ultimate level, the universe always wins. You always cash out in some way, um, <coughs> leveling, leveling everything out. Over a long enough timeline, the survival rate ends at zero for all things, not just our lives, but relationships, uh, you know, uh, uh, ways of being in the world. Everything changes. And the fight to keep things the same is what really can hurt us. <clears throat> now, it's very natural to try to keep things the same, to try to keep things safe, to try to keep... That's very natural. Awakening to the truth beyond name and form is not normal. It's an extra step. It's being able to take all of the, the stuff that we, we do. It's to take this life that we've been leading and examine it so totally, so fully, that we can actually see through the partial truths and begin to plug into something that's far more complete, that once again goes past but brings along our current state. Ken Wilbur, the author, uh, refers to this as it transcends but includes where we are, where we transcend but include, transcend but include, we turn our spiritual states into integrated traits in this process. And it's not for the, it's not for the, the weak. I mean, I hate to say it in those terms, but you, there, there, it involves steel. It involves tempering. I was looking at my uh, father-in-law's wall, and his, his father was um, a rather highly decorated World War II veteran uh, in um, the Pacific Theater. Now, there's a note uh, from, you know, uh, I guess Douglas MacArthur and so forth, you know, you know telling him, hey, Great job, and because I think that's what MacArthur did. He just basically said, "Hey, great job." Uh, and there's on on this wall this beautiful, beautiful samurai sword, and um, uh, he said that was given to him. I guess if I'm, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but it was given to my um, father-in-law's father by uh, the commanding officer of a group that was surrendering. Something you just didn't do. But this beautiful blade, looking at this blade and knowing that it's, it's so old and it's been tempered by pounding, folding, pounding, folding, more heat. Pounding, right? That's essentially what we're doing in our practice. We are putting ourselves in situations where we have to examine the life that we're leading in this very moment. And as difficult as that is, it's so freeing when we kind of begin to let that stop the inertia of the old way of being and then burst into something else, just like a butterfly will come out of a cocoon. We essentially, in the meditation practice, turn ourselves and our orientation almost into like this, the soup that a caterpillar will do in the chrysalis. Think about, I mean, we're literally in a chrysalis 
okay? And the butterfly experience is very natural. It transcends and includes the caterpillar. It's not that the caterpillar is dead. It's that the caterpillar is no longer the mode of being. And we get that way by becoming absolutely 100% totally intimate with our experience. Without flinching, we're right there with our experience. If we're feeling afraid, we become very intimate with our fear. We start seeing that our fear is all about loss. And then when we start thinking about it, you guys, loss is all there is. So if we're leading a life of fear that pertains to loss, we're basically leading a life governed by a sense of lack instead of the effulgence that is presented to us in every moment. This is hard. This is so hard. But meditation practice helps us get there. We begin to meet our resistance. If we can meet our resistance, whatever it is, whatever our negativity is, that's basically just a flag. Remember like we talked about preferences, how preferences show us where our attachments are? If we can find negativity, that's showing us where our ego is getting an invitation from the universe and it's scraping against its skin. That's all negativity is. It's an invitation from the universe to come play. Ego's like, no, I'm in here. I'm going to stay in here. So I wanted to talk real quickly about a couple of, uh, couple of ways to, to snare ourselves on this path. There are a couple of ways that we can really kind of get pulled, pulled off from this natural evolution of transcending and including, okay, where we go from the small and we evolve very naturally and spontaneous, uh, spontaneously into something that's much grander, much bigger, much more complete. One of the things that keeps us small, for instance, is getting absolutely fascinated with something. Obsessed. Obsession keeps us small. Even if it's obsession with spirituality. Actually, especially if it's obsession with spirituality, that will keep us small. That keeps the teaching from pointing us into a direction that allows us for us to open. So watch for that. It doesn't mean you negate a particular tradition or a particular book or a particular teacher or a particular group. It doesn't mean you negate it because that's just the same attachment going in another direction. But it means you become very clear about how much you are desiring something. Okay? Obsession. Something to watch for. Another trap, another snare for us, is clinging to experiences that we might uncover. While on the cushion, I suddenly had the entire, you know, my entire life flash before me and so forth, and I want to, I want to do that again. If we attach to experience on the cushion or off the cushion, attaching to experience actually keeps us small. It keeps the evolutionary process from naturally unfolding, just like obsession. Another way I could say obsession actually is addiction. If you're addicted to anything, 
Okay. Whether it's a substance, a person, or an ideology, we're keeping the evolution from happening. Other thing to watch out for is spiritual glitz. The kapow, the whiz-bang, the, uh, is something that is very, very seductive when we believe that this isn't authentic, but that is because of the way it makes me feel or the way it looks. Actually, there isn't anything that's inauthentic. There are just different things that will echo and resonate within us a little bit differently. Be very much in tune with that. But if you get seduced by glitz, that can be that can be kind of dangerous. You see this all the time, actually, in, um, and it's something to be very, very wary of. Uh, charismatics, no matter what tradition they're in, if somebody is an incredibly charismatic leader, that oftentimes can, can <coughs> tweak our own unconsciousness, and we can kind of get lost. We can kind of lose sight of what's truly important. Perhaps the most seductive is how do we speed this thing up? <laughs> Anyone? Anyone felt that way? Yes. <laughs> we live in a culture of speed. You know? I need to hurry this up because I don't know how many years I have left. You know? Or I'm bored. All valid. All valid. But it's an area that can become an obsession for us. How do I quicken this process? Here are the three big shortcuts, and they're not going to be a surprise to anybody. Number one, get a group of people that you feel like you can kind of co-mingle with. Get a teaching that, once again, resonates or echoes with your heart's deepest longing. And Number one, find teachers. Find them everywhere. You can have it in a formal setting like this or like at any number of sanghas or religious institutions anywhere. You can have it like that. But also find that everything is a teacher. Every situation is a teacher. Actually, every situation is a red carpet into the house of God. Every single situation is a yellow brick road. Except you actually find the real wizard. <coughs> actually, I don't know if you find a real wizard, but <laughs> I was just, just kind of going with it there. <laughs> you find a real, wi real wizard, his name is Tim. <laughs> Tell him I said hi. Another, another uh, place where we can get caught is when we get into this space, and this is really common. I've talked about this a lot, actually, over the last few months, is that where's the magic? Where's the juice? I'm missing something. This is no longer. When I first started, man, I was great, and it was really, and now it's like I know too much to go back, and moving forward is just not giving me anything. I'm totally screwed now. What? It's very common. Okay. But it's all part of the evolutionary process. It is all part of this, this divine spark that is beginning to catch fire. 
in some weeds that aren't necessarily dry yet. So we're, we patiently, to stretch that metaphor, dry the weeds by sitting still. Let that fire, let that fire burn. Another trap is the idea that, well, it's all karma. Um, sure, you could do that. I've certainly been in situations uh, with Westerners and non-Westerners who in their tradition are all about kind of this space of, well, you know, it's, it's their karma. That's why, that's what, you know, Holocausts happen. It's, it's their karma. And I think we can, we can go into that space. I just don't think it's very wise or very compassionate. I think it actually, it defiles the teaching when we readily accept some disaster and excuse it by cloaking it in the wrap or robe of karma. <coughs> I think it's actually critical that we remain engaged. This is a huge, huge issue for me when I first started. I couldn't believe this, this uh, beautiful series of teachings of peace from the East and this dynamism from the West and somehow they never, they, they, they didn't really mesh very well. And I think one of the gifts that we can bring to the evolution of this teaching is to actually begin to carry peace very constructively into what we might term as war. That justice met from a place of total compassion, wisdom, love, joy, actually begins to allow justice to flow freely. But if we're approaching justice from a place of war, a place of opposition, a place of negativity, what ultimately are we doing? We're actually contributing to the war. It's like going to an anti-war rally is basically going to a war rally against war. <laughs> it's, it's critical here that we actually recognize that karma is just the tangle of living scared. If we live in fear, we're generating karma. And the last one, perhaps most dangerous, is that all is illusory. Therefore, nothing matters. That's exactly how Japan was able to get kamikaze pilots by recruiting Zen monks. Oh, it's all, nothing matters. Everything's empty. Well, yeah, everything is empty, but everything is also substantive. And this goes right back to where we started. It's real, this life that we're experiencing. It's real. You and I are here. We're experiencing this, this moment, this life. There's also more to the story of life. And being able to integrate those two realities, that's ultimately our work. That's where the rubber really hits the road in this practice, and that's where it gets kind of exciting. Because what we begin to do is we begin to grow into beings that ultimately are the answers to prayer. <laughs> we begin to walk through, with, and as holiness. 
not in an, e an egoic way, but in a really giving way. And I think especially as we approach this Thanksgiving season, we can meet that when we recognize gratitude deeply. What are we thankful for? That's open. That helps us evolve, transcend, and include what is small in us. Not what are we pissed about, which keeps us small. What are we grateful for? What are we curious about, rather than what we know? I know this to be true. I wonder about it. And those are just two moves that you might be sensitive to over the next, next week, especially as we get into the holiday season. Doing so allows us to see past the mythology of me and mine. And it allows us to see the truism articulated by um, the cartoon character Pogo. Remember the cartoon character? What's his name? Walt? Stephen Walt? Um, I forget the author of the particular cartoon. Such a beautiful line. Us is them. We start seeing this vast connectivity. We start experiencing that we have a felt experience of that there's nothing to be afraid of because there's nothing lost. In the ultimate sense, it's already gone. from the Buddhist perspective is about tangle. We might call it a tangle. And so karmic activity is activity that's done from me and mine as opposed to not me and not mine, which is open. Me and mine for me, for my acquisition type thing. That generates then uh, a tangle in our life experience. So, in essence, your idea of good karma and bad karma are still true. I mean, that still works. But think of it this way. Instead of good karma and bad karma, think of open relationship to experience and closed relationship to experience or no, or non-egoic openness and egoic clinging or not me, not mine, me and mine. Substituting for good and bad karma. Does that kind of make sense? That can be helpful. <laughs> I think I saw hands, but no? Okay. So that all made sense then? Every bit of it? Every bit of that? It didn't? It didn't make sense. Excuse me for one moment. <laughs> Tell me about that. How did it not make sense? It's a very long journey. 
Mm. To go from not me to not mine to not me and not mine? Correct. Mm-hmm. Did it bug you? Is there doubt? <laughs> Is there resistance? No. No resistance. However, trust may still be an issue. Do I trust this path? Do I trust... I have no idea what you just said, but that was cool. <laughs> that was cool. Well, yeah. The idea that that um, that there is not mine, and yet there is mine. Both are true. Correct. Both are true from the space of what we might call non-duality. In the dualistic sense, in the world of black and white, this, that, me, you. Right? right? In that space, then only one truth can be held. And that's the one of the senses, of the body, of the mind. But when we start going into that non-dual spaciousness that transcends and includes that smaller view, suddenly trust isn't even an issue. It is. Okay. Just play with it. And I'm sorry if I made you uncomfortable, but you're fun to tease. So. I wasn't uncomfortable. Yeah, okay. Trying to get it. Trying to get it? Oh. That's, that keeps it small. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's best if we. It's best if you walk out of here and then just. Blah, blah, blah. Nothing happened. Nothing just happened. But in, in all seriousness, kind of a letting go of the, letting go of the words and just doing your best while you're on your cushion and while you're in your day to recognize first, how possessive are you? How much do you cling to the story of me, the story of mine? Even if it's like really good chicken pot pie. <laughs> yeah. That is a great face right now. I'm getting a great face. Well, if I'm not clinging to what is me and what is mine, mm -hmm. or the illusion of what I think is mine, mm -hmm. <laughs> then um, it's pretty boring. Or you are walking openly into the realm of infinite possibility, which isn't boring. But there's just me and my cube and the computer, and that's really limiting. That's me and mine. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. And the not me, not mine, allows for a much more expansive relationship with all things. There's a lot more space in there. In the cube with the computer. Even with the cube and the computer. You take the realization of the big back into the world. You integrate that back into the world of the small, and suddenly the world of the small and big begin to fuse and integrate together. And now you are living a much 
more profoundly rich life. That's when states become traits. That's when, that's when, the, that's when all of this work of stillness begins to show up in our day to day. And do I, don't take my word for it. Don't trust me. Kind of trust me. <laughs> it's a little bit. A little bit of trust is probably good in this experience. But uh, yeah, I just. But I'm really serious about that. That's. This is. You guys got to do the work. There's not, I'm not going to give you anything. Except pointers. Go that way. No. Yes. No. Okay. Why is this hurting? Well, go that way. Mm. You know, and that's kind of the way. <laughs> that's my little interpretive dance of, as to how teaching works. The little, yeah. But try it. Try it. Doctor? I'm having trouble. <clears throat> Excellent. I'm having trouble thinking about how to use quiet time, meditation. Uh -huh. <clears throat> to bring up these, the issue you're talking about. Right. Because my quiet time focuses very much on my, <clears throat> on my breathing. Mm -hmm. The in being the, uh, the calming the body. Yeah. Being the smile and the, yeah. the glory of life. Right. Where do you have a suggestion as to how in our quiet time we can focus. There's so many different issues here. Right. We can focus on something. Yeah. That will bring some clarity to. Yeah, I, I would I would do the uh, Thich Nhat Hanh um, has these beautiful little uh, breathing poems that he uses. Right. Breathing in, I accept all things. Breathing out, I give love to the universe. Things like that. Those are really really cool, and they're almost like a quasi mantra which helps to focus the mind. So in your meditation, you might want to try doing that type of breathing poetry. That's what I do. For, but do it for 10 minutes. Do it for, or do it for five. If, you, if you're sitting for 20 minutes, let's say, do it for five of those 20 minutes. Do it for 10. And then shift into what we might call just an open awareness of what is. So that you're not focusing on a particular thing because when we focus on a particular thing that oftentimes can become a mental attachment okay. which diminishes the whole offering of meditation. Does that kind of make sense? Period. Yeah. You're focusing on as Thich Nhat Hanh would do it. I think that's great. Then you wait for thoughts waiting. to arise. Okay. And then when the thought arises, whatever it is, all at that moment when a thought arises, High thought, right? You, yeah, you don't have to go, ah, I know why I'm thinking this thought. I know why I'm thinking this thought that I don't appreciate. I, don't, I neither appreciate the thought nor the impulse to have this thought. Whoa, there's negativity. I'm having negativity now. I cannot believe this negative. I suck at this. I, you, you know, I mean, there's all this stuff that kind of goes on. And, and so instead... <laughs> So what we do, then the way, the way out of that trap is to, instead of judging or compartmentalizing anything that's going on, you basically just say, memory, if it's a memory, something from your past, 
judgment, if it's an evaluation. You're, you're greeting it essentially. It, you're like this, with an open heart and an open mind, and you're not trying to do anything to it. You are just witnessing that thought, whatever it is. And in that spaciousness, that spaciousness of witnessing, what do we do? That's when we begin to integrate. That's when we, we transcend and include the thought because that which is watching the thought is not bound by the thought. It's much bigger. That's our awakened mind. That is our enlightened mind. It is totally free. And what we do is we practice that again and again with every thought that arises. So that might be a really interesting experiment with your meditation. Give that a shot and see and report back. Yeah. And I'm sure the next time you come in here, you're going to have like this massive halo around your head. I mean, you already do, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And did you, have a, did you have a question too? Or was that, were you kind of going in line with his? No, I, I thought that was a very good question. Yeah, it was. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yes. Yeah. So what's one small step? It's like how do we? How, I don't feel connected to everybody. You don't feel connected to everybody. Not at all. Right. That's natural. Okay. Yet, if we pull it back just to physics, if we just look at the physics of it, okay, the physics of this reality right here, what's the difference between you and that lamp over there? Organization and energy. That's it. That's the only difference. The the Pardon me? <laughs> you're not having an argument? Thankfully. Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully you're not. But, but the, the person you're having an argument with, what is the difference between you and that person? Organization and energy. Ultimately, you both are sharing the same life experience, okay? And death experience, okay? And so what happens is, this goes back to this idea of, tender, of getting tenderized by this practice. This practice, when we are forced into a situation where we are just witnessing whatever comes up after we maybe kind of focus our mind a little bit, and then we just start witnessing, same thing happens when you're in a situation where somebody offers something up that is, might be perceived by the small self as utter and total threat. There's another side of you, or there's a more open aspect of you that looks at that as, wow, <laughs> this person is being a total jackass, but that's okay. Now, it doesn't mean you give in and you say, their, their jackassery is fine with me. It's that you actually meet their, their unconsciousness with your consciousness. And what that does is it allows for your response to their unconsciousness to be totally generous to you and to them. There's no me, mine in there. There's just this situation. Well, 
Oh, defending, help me with that. You feel like you're defending yourself if you are, if you are actually witnessing their... No, 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 but, but then, wait, wait, wait. But, and while that may be true, but do you see how you, yeah, but, but do you see how you've turned that into an opinion? Your opinion? And what was what you said then? Uh, essentially, you're looking at their unconsciousness from a place of total consciousness. Just like when you're sitting in meditation, you're looking at whatever arises from a place of total consciousness. What does this create? Space. In that space, we're no longer, uh, we're no longer violated by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. We're no, longer, we're no longer tweaked by their commentary or whatever. It's, not, it's just not as threatening. They are merely mirroring aspects of you that do exactly the same thing to them or to others, all right? If we are feeling totally defensive all the time, that's basically we are feeling this close to attack all the time. It's, 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 the, same, it's the same emotional charge, just one's leaning back and the other one's leaning forward. Just like attachment is also the same thing as aversion. It's just in another direction. And so what we do as practitioners is we begin to get very conscious in the heat of those moments. We just try to be observing it and the, and the, the tendency to want to get into that dynamic push-pull. Is that yeah, before, bef yes, because that unconscious ego needs an unconscious ego to dance with. It cannot dance with a conscious ego. Furthermore, its dance falls flat on the floor the minute it starts dealing with consciousness itself. I mean, when you are really, really totally aware, there's no, no space for that person to go except away. You know? Just try it. See what happens. See what happens. The next time somebody throws something at you, I'm telling you, it's a total gift. It is a total gift because it, it helps you practice in that moment. And what are you practicing? Non-clinging. Non-clinging to an old story, non-clinging to their unconsciousness, right? Not clinging to your own unconsciousness. The minute they throw it, first thing, and rehearse this in your head, first thing you should do, take a deep breath. That's it. You take that deep breath, you're aware of what just happened. And then if you fly off the handle with, with, you know, you've just violated me and my sense of what's true, practice it next week, you know? Yeah. <laughs>